you have your Bible, go ahead and open up to uh, Revelation chapter 3. We'll be looking at uh, Revelation chapter 3 and then uh, we got to go back a little bit um, and uh, unpack the rest of Revelation chapter 2. Uh, but a um, couple things uh, real quick before uh, I forget. Uh, yes, baptism class, November 13th. There's a sign-up sheet on the back table. Um, if you haven't been baptized, maybe you've been uh, baptized um, and you didn't really know what you were doing when you were getting baptized, um, uh, this is for you. Uh, the next step in your, your faith journey, if you will, uh, is baptism. Uh, it's an outward declaration of what God has done inside of a, of a believer. It's saying, listen, my old man is dead, and I am a new creation in Christ. As soon as you come up out of that water, that is your proclamation and declaration that Jesus has transformed me, and I want people to know. And so... Um, anyways, that class will be um, just about what, what baptism is. And then um, uh, this next one. Uh, so with uh, November also comes uh, voting on propositions and uh, people to, to run in, in certain places within our government. Um, I'm sure you've seen all the signs out by now. Um, one of them that I touched base on a couple weeks ago um, was Proposition 1, um, where in California, abortion would be uh, legal. Now, I'm not just saying legal like in the sense of you're allowed to get it up into a certain point. Abortion, if this proposition passes, you would be able to abort a baby no matter the stage, uh, which is scary. Uh, we, we live in a dark state, guys. I mean, there's no... Uh, I, I mean, you have to be living under a rock if you don't realize and recognize how uh, corrupt our, our governor is. Um, and so definitely be praying for him, but there's also something else that you can do is that you can actually do something about it and vote. You, you can get out there and you can say no to, uh, to, to Proposition 1. Uh, I didn't realize this, and as I dug further into it... Um, our tax dollars uh, make it possible for these abortions to happen. I do not want to contribute to anyone's sin. Um, and so that's why I'm choosing to vote. I'm saying no. Like, I know what God's heart is towards life. I know how he has created life inside the womb. And for us to just sit idle and do nothing about it, that's on us. God has given us an opportunity to, to stand. And we must. Um, and so... Vote no on that prop. Um, if you recognize the value of life and the baby in the womb, uh, this is the least you can do, uh, is to say no. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not siding with that governor. Uh, so anyways, um, and then also, um, I didn't mention this, I should have mentioned this, but on November 6th, um, uh, it's actually... Uh, Keith and Rachel and Skyler's last Sunday with us, uh, but at six, six o'clock that night, um, we're going to just have kind of a uh, send-off prayer dinner type thing for them. So um, it's, uh, what do they say, a BYO, bring your own dish. Um, we just like doing that around here, so bring your own dish. Um, but we, we just want to uh, pray over them. Uh, we'll pray over them in the morning as well, but um, 
we just want to send them off uh, with a ton of prayer um, and make sure that um, we're continuing to support them in that way. Uh, so uh, November 6th at 6 p.m. Got it? Good. Okay. Uh, let's all stand as we read God's word together. Revelation chapter 3, verse 1 through 6. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Verse 4. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments and they will walk with me in white for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Lord, this is your word. God, this is truth. It is the only place that we will find truth. And so, Lord, I pray that as we read your truth this morning, that truth would penetrate our hearts. God, that we would be sensitive to the work of the Spirit upon our lives. God, that we wouldn't be hard-hearted, that we wouldn't be resistant or stubborn as you, as you minister to us. Lord, we want to be uh, open to the move of your Spirit upon our lives, God. We need it. The church needs an awakening, God, a revival. Lord, we need that. And we ask that you would come in at least to this church and you would wake us up. God, help us not to be full of hypocrisy and, and, and dead bones like Jesus called out the Pharisees. Lord, help us to be a church that is alive on the outside and alive on the inside and, and people are curious about what is going on. Lord, we want to be a church that is on fire for you. And so, Lord, I ask that you would awaken our souls, Lord. God, if there's anyone in here this morning that has come in with some heaviness, Lord, I pray that they would remember that they can come to you. How your, your promise of, of anyone who is weary or heavy laden, that they can come to you and they'll find rest for their souls, Lord. Help them to find rest in you. And so, Lord, I pray that you would Help us to be in tune with your word and your spirit this morning. It's in Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. I'll have a seat. Uh, so let's backtrack a little bit. Uh, the church of Thyatira, uh, right? It, it was uh, not a, a very well-known city like Pergamum. Um, it was actually the defense for Pergamum. It was located 40 miles away from uh, Pergamum. Uh, and it, unfortunately, they didn't stand a chance against those who would come and try to attack Thyatira. They were in an open valley. They wouldn't last long. And so anyways, uh, this church was, uh, they were good in certain areas. Uh, Jesus commended them for their works and their love and their service and even their faith. And he says, the, the works and service that you're doing now are actually better than uh, what you were doing at the beginning. You're growing in that sense. And he, he says, but I have something against you. <laughs> um, 
that Jezebel lady, she's bad news. She is infiltrating heresy into the church, and you have people in the church that are allowing this to take place. Namely, he's calling out the pastor. He's saying, okay, pastor, it's on you. He's saying, if you're not going to deal with it, then we have greater issues. Jezebel came in and she spread this doctrine of sexual morality and, and food offered to, to idols. And, and Jesus says, listen, you have some within the church that are tolerating this false doctrine. And it must not be so. You must stop immediately. Jezebel was not the Old Testament Jezebel. If you remember, uh, Jezebel in the Old Testament was the one that chased down Elijah. Elijah ran in the cave. Jezebel wanted this, the, all the prophets to be toast. And, and Elijah runs to the cave. And um, that's another awesome account in Scripture that we can get to later. But that's not the same Jezebel. Uh, this is a different Jezebel. Most likely, it's a reference to some woman within the church that had a spirit like Jezebel in the Old Testament. And so... Jesus says, you're tolerating her false doctrine, and you need to stop. But I want you to know this, in verse 21 through 23, he says this, I gave her time to repent. Isn't that such a picture of God's grace? I gave her time to repent, but there's our action and her action when it comes to God's grace, but she refuses. She refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. Jesus ultimately said that he gave her time to repent of her sin, but she continued in her sinful ways. And maybe this is you today. Maybe the Lord is giving you time to repent. He's, he's kept calling you to repent and turn from your stubbornness, from your sin, from your pride, from all of these things that you're chasing after. And he's calling you to repent before it's too late because, listen, uh, we're not guaranteed tomorrow. Jesus says if she does not repent, there's the consequence to her unrepentant heart is, I will throw her onto a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation. Her sin was the sin of sexual immorality. And obviously, sexual immorality was committed on the bed and in the bed. And Jesus says, okay, fine. You want to hang out there, you can hang out there, but it's going to be uh, much different than what you're used to. You're going to be stricken with sickness because of your unrepentant heart. And it wasn't just for her. Jesus says this. He, he says, and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation. So all those people who tolerated uh, this doctrine and this heresy, Jesus says, listen, for those of you that are following this and buying into this, there's consequences for you as well. They would be thrown into great tribulation, uh, not the great tribulation that we'll find out in Revelation uh, later on, but this was a great time of distress, of, of hardship because of their ongoing sin, because of their refusal to repent. Jesus specifically says, unless they repent of her works, not their works, her works, because they had bought into what she was bringing into the church. And then Jesus says, I will also strike her children dead. Now, uh, don't have in mind little children, 
that is not what Jesus is referring to. It's not little children. It's actually more in reference to those who would be following her cultish ways. At the time of this writing, the church of Thyatira was 40 years old. And so there were other individuals actually who grew up under this teaching and who were heavily influenced and ultimately became Jezebel's children, if you will. And Jesus says, listen, I'm, I'm, if they don't repent, I'm going to strike them dead. Jesus doesn't mess around when it comes to repentance. When he calls a person to repent, he calls a person to repent. And if there is no repentance, there is consequences to our sin. Verse 23, it says, And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. He is the God who searches. He knows the motives and intents of our hearts. He knows those who are genuine and those who are phony. Remember how his eyes are in Scripture? In the beginning of his introduction to the church in Thyatira, he says the words of the Son of God whose eyes are like a flame of fire. He sees right through. You cannot hide anything from the Lord. And as much as this church was trying to cover up their tolerating of this false doctrine, Jesus says you can't fool me. You can't get this one uh, past me. I, I know what is happening within this church. Jesus' eyes are like a flame of fire. He's able to look through our exterior right into our hearts. He sees our motives. He knows our intentions. And you might say, well, my heart is pure. Sure. <laughs> well, my heart is in the right place all the time, liar. What does Jeremiah 17, 9 through 10 say? It says, your heart and my heart, the heart, everyone's heart, no matter how many good deeds you do, listen to this, is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Isn't that such a great question? Because we barely can even understand our own hearts. And look what he says next. He says, I, the Lord, search the heart. And test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. This is exactly the reason why we need to be open and honest before the Lord. Because there's nothing you and I can hide from him. He knows your sin, yet he's still willing to forgive you of it. And call you to repentance. He, he knows the intent of your heart and why you do the things you do. He knows the hypocrisy that looms within you. How you're one way at home and another way at church. He knows the sexual immorality you may be caught up in. And listen, he's calling you to repent. You cannot hide anything from the Lord. Adam and Eve. You remember their story. Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden fruit. And what did they do? They hid themselves. They covered themselves up and they hid behind a bush. And God comes walking into the garden and he asks this question. He says, where are you? It wasn't because God is horrible at hide and seek, okay? He was calling Adam to repent, and he was calling Adam and Eve to be accountable for their own sin. And maybe God is asking you that today. Where are you? Not because he doesn't know where you're at, but where are you? Are you full of hypocrisy? Are you full of pride? Are you full of sexual immorality? Are you full of worshiping some type of thing in your life other than the Lord? Where are you? We have to ask ourselves that question time and time again because if we don't examine our own hearts, if we don't check where we are spiritually, we will drift away slowly. 
See, God may be asking the same thing to us this morning, not because he doesn't know, but because he wants you to acknowledge that you have messed up so he can, check this out, forgive you. You remember what scripture says, 1 John 1, 9, if you confess, the forgiveness of our sins is contingent upon if we confess. If you confess your sins, where's the rest of that verse say? He's faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. God cannot forgive you of your sin if you can't confess your own sin. We have to bring it before him. We have to say, God, I've messed up. I have dropped the ball. I'm full of hypocrisy. I'm full of pride. I'm full of sexual immorality. But Lord, you know it. You know it all, but I'm bringing this before you because I know if I don't ask for forgiveness, my sin will never be forgiven. I will be living in sin, walking in sin. Listen, it is a daily decision to confess our sins before the Lord and say, God, I've messed up and I need your forgiveness. Verse 23 through 25, it says, But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. Now, Jesus is kind of using some sarcasm here. The deep things of Satan, uh, not so. He says to them who uh, hold on to this teaching, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. He says, this is the only requirement I have of you. Hold fast what you have until I come. So those who were not holding on to the teaching of Jezebel were still in and around those who were influenced by the teaching of Jezebel, yet they did not compromise in their doctrine that they received from the Lord. They held fast to it. They held fast to the word of God. And the only requirement for those who did not tolerate it, who were not compromising, was to hold on to what they knew. And that was the word of God. Grant Osborne says this, to hold on to this means to keep a tenacious hold on truth as well as on the Christian way of life that is the outworking of truth. We are dealing here with right doctrine and right practice. And until the return of Christ, believers must both teach the truths of God and oppose those who fail to do so. If you see heresy, if you hear heresy, if you hear uh, unbiblical teaching, call it out. To the church in Smyrna, you remember Jesus commended them for holding fast to his name. While to this church, Jesus' requirement for them was to hold on to right doctrine. And if we were to put all the exhortations to all the churches we've looked at so far in Revelation, it would say this, starting with Ephesus, love God, love people, hold fast to my name, hold fast to the truth that is found in his word. That would be the message so far. And yet Jesus has some things he's dealing with when it comes to these next churches. In verse 26 through 28 of chapter 2, Jesus says, The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are in broken pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. Jesus is essentially saying, To those who conquer, listen, I'm giving you a share of my kingdom. He is saying, You are going to rule and reign with me. 
And ultimately, Jesus is saying to the one who conquers, you're on the winning team. But Jesus makes this uh, interesting promise. He says, and I will give him the morning star. What is the morning star? Uh, It's actually much simpler than I think we make it out to be. Jesus in another church said that he would give them the hidden manna, right? Manna brings you back to Exodus where uh, the Israelites complained and God sent them manna. Uh, The morning star is none other than Jesus. Revelation 22 verse 16, I am the bright and morning star. Jesus is saying that. He's saying, listen, to the one who conquers, I will give him me, That's all we need. And Jesus is saying, if that doesn't satisfy you, then you're going to go off into phony doctrine, heresy. He says, well, listen, to the one who conquers, you will receive fellowship and communion and relationship with me. Verse 29, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Again, Jesus is calling Uh, this church to essentially be in tune, to say, uh, listen up. Uh, The Spirit wants to speak to the church, and since God has given us ears to hear, uh, let's make sure we're in tune with what He has to say. Now, to the church in Sardis. Verse 1, Jesus says, And to the angel of the church in Sardis, write, The words of Him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now, Uh, The map should be up there. So Sardis uh, is inland as well. Uh, Sardis was this city that nobody really had any desire to live in. And it was 30 miles east of Thyatira. Um, And Sardis was, let's be honest, it was just kind of (laughs) there. Sardis was this city uh, known for its degeneration Uh, It was the wealth of Sardis that was more so legendary than anything else. It it was said that it had a river uh, called the Pactolus, that river. It was a river full of gold, but it was also a center of wool. Uh, Unfortunately, though, Sardis, the city, was destroyed by an earthquake. And a Roman emperor would offer money uh, to rebuild this once blooming city, But after it was rebuilt, it was never quite the same. Uh, They were lethargic. They were complacent. They were lazy. They were sleepy. Uh, They had the appearance of being physically alive, but the city inside was truly dead. And Jesus includes the church within this. He says in verse 1, I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. How's that? That's not very encouraging, not very comforting either. I look alive on the outside, but inside I'm dead. Uh, Jesus starts out with saying, I know your works. Jesus was aware of the spiritual life of the church. Uh, Their works were more than likely half-hearted. They were going through the motions as a church. Better yet, they were a Sunday morning only type of church. No outreach was essentially happening. It was just, you know what, let's keep the the people that we have inside. We won't reach out. We won't, you know, reach out into our community in hopes that the gospel will spread throughout our community. We're content with us four and no more. 
The church may still be there physically if it decides to do that. But listen, spiritually, it begins to lose the life it once had within the church. The church would soon find itself to, uh, to start smelling like death. Because life was evaporating from the assembly. Outreach wasn't taking place. Uh, the intention of reaching out to those in their community who didn't know Christ, uh, there was no effort. There was no intent to reach these people. But listen, the bride of Christ, okay, if you are a believer, if you have confessed Jesus as Lord, you are a bride. Guys, get over yourselves. That's just the way it is. <laughs> But our call as the bride of Christ is to invite others to the marriage supper of the Lamb. If you don't know what that is, we'll get into it down the road. But our call as believers is not to sit comfortably, I don't know, comfortably in the church chairs. And it's not even our call to come in and sip on our coffee with pumpkin spice creamer. (laughs) Sorry to burst your bubble. (laughs) We're not called to live comfortably. And then call it good at the end of the day. Got my seat that I always come to on Sunday morning. It's always going to be there because underneath it I've stuck my gum. And, you know, I'm not saying any of you have done that. <laughs> you know, I got my coffee. My parking spot is always there too. You know, I'm good. I'm, I don't need to do anything else. My life is Christ's and I'm content with just coming on Sunday. Well, we got news for you. We're not just a Sunday morning only church. See, our call is to share the gospel, to share Jesus with a world that is dead. Have you seen California lately? Have you seen the darkness that exists? Have you seen the wickedness and the corruption and the hopelessness that exists within our own state? Uh, And we're called. We're called to go out and to proclaim the gospel. If you have your Bible, turn over to Luke uh, chapter 14, verse 12 through 24. It's the parable of the great banquet. Starting in verse 12, Jesus is telling a parable, a, a, a story with a heavenly meaning that we can apply to our lives. Uh, anyways, he says, uh, he said also to the man who had invited him, uh, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be un- you be repaid but when you give a feast invite the poor the crippled the lame the blind and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just and when one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things he said to him blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God but he said to him said to him a man once gave a great banquet and invited many and at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come for, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I bought a field and I got to go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have, brought, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I need to go examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. <laughs> Verse 21, so the servant came and reported these things to his master. 
Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who are invited shall taste my banquet. Do you see the call upon the believer's life to go out and reach those who, who are lost, who are crippled and blind and lame? Listen, you and I were just like that before Christ. And somebody told you about the gospel and they said, listen, there's good news. Jesus saves. He, he, can, he can give you sight. He can make you walk. But you gotta come to him. And so Jesus is essentially saying, listen, go out. Don't just stay and sit comfortably within your four walls. Listen, if the church stops sharing the gospel with those in the community, we'll find that a lack of sharing and inviting is a surefire way to watch the church crumble. The church, it might house Christians, but if the believers inside are not willing to go out, and impact a community or reach a community. Essentially, that church is disobeying the Great Commission. Jesus said, go and make disciples. He didn't say, sit in your chairs, drink your coffee, and I'll bring them to you. You know what go means, right? Go. <laughs> Jesus is saying, get moving. And this church was so complacent with where they were at and their, their, their spiritual life there was no going. They were staying. Let me ask you something this morning. When is the last time you told someone about Jesus? When is the last time you told someone, someone who you don't know that there is a God in heaven who loves them and that Jesus loves them? When was the last time? Let me ask another question. When is the last time you invited someone to church? When is the last time you, you said, hey, you know, just come with me on Sunday? You might have to bribe them a little bit with in and out afterwards, but they'll, they'll understand. But when was the last time you actually invited somebody to church? I get it. It's nerve-wracking sometimes. You don't know this person. And, but listen, sometimes out of casual conversation, conversations about church will come up. You don't have to say anything spiritual like, Use these fancy regeneration, justification, sanctification. Don't drive through your coffee shop and start talking to the barista about how Jesus can justify you. She's going to look at you or he's going to look at you like you're crazy. <laughs> but Jesus commands us to go. And so as we continue to minister to the community around us, may God give us a burden for those who don't know Christ. May we always occupy until the Lord comes and may we always be about the Lord's business until Christ calls us home. Jesus says, you have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Uh, remember Jesus' conversation with uh, the scribes and Pharisees? He has seven woes. And one of the woes is this in Matthew 23, verse 27 and 28. It says, woe to you. And this was not like a good woe, like, whoa, guys, you're doing well. It was, no, you're doing horrible. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Takes it a step further and just completely calls them out. Hypocrites. For you are like whitewashed tombs, 
which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. My prayer for us is that we wouldn't look at this and say, oh, those were the scribes and Pharisees. Listen, if you have hypocrisy in you this morning, it's a call out to you as well. Jesus was saying to both the Pharisees and the church in Sardis, you look good on the outside. You say the right Christian things. You got your get to church sticker on the back of your car. You got Caleb blasting and the word blasting. You rolling, rolling into your kid's school with it blaring because you want all the other parents to know that you're, you're a Christian. But in the inside, it doesn't look like the outside. It's full of what Jesus calls people's uh, dead people's bones and, and uncleanness and hypocrisy and lawlessness. Here's the bottom line. You may be able to fool the people around you, but Jesus knows what's inside. And our desire, our prayer, our aim should be that what is on the inside reflects on the outside. But ultimately, this is a strong rebuke for this church, and may, may it be so for us as well. Jesus was calling them out and saying, stop your hypocrisy. You have an appearance of being li- alive, but you're dead. He says, stop faking it. Stop, stop trying to fool everybody around you. Listen, if you don't know Christ, don't fake like you do. But if you know Christ, live like you do. I wonder, though, this morning, is this a rebuke for some of us? You know, you wear the, the, the Christian hat real well when you're at church, but when you get home, you're constantly yelling at your kids, you're nagging on your husband, you're unloving to your wife, but then you get to church or you see another believer in the store and you're like, hey, hey, put the Christian hat on real quick. Hypocrite. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, don't do that. See, to some of us, for some of us this morning, Jesus is calling us out. Saying, listen, you have the appearance of being alive. Outwardly, you look really good. But that doesn't matter. It's what's here. And Jesus is saying, ultimately, you're dead. How's that for a call out? How's that for a a letter from your Lord and Savior ultimately saying, listen, guys, I don't got good news for you. The church in Sardis was once known as a strong Christ-honoring church. They, They still used the name of Christ, but outwardly they were a church of, of Christ, but life on the inside was gone. Most of the members were, would have been professing Christians, but not truly regenerate. They, they really didn't allow what Jesus had done for them to really wreck them inside. They didn't allow the truth of the word to really come in and, and, and pierce their hearts. They were content with just going through the motions. Just coming to church on Sunday. Just doing the things on our checkoff lists. See, I really believe the church was caught up in the sin of hypocrisy, but also the sin of spiritual lethargy. And to this church, Jesus says, 
I see right past your reputation of being alive. And the rebuke of Jesus to this church in Sardis is this, in verse 2, wake up, strengthen that which remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. So their sin was hypocrisy. Their sin was being spiritually, spiritually asleep. And Jesus ultimately in this verse gives the remedy. The first point in the remedy to their sin was to wake up. Wake up. The church was lethargic. The church was asleep. They were spiritually asleep. No longer was it about passionately pursuing Jesus. It was only about going through the motions. It wasn't about pursuing Christ and getting to know him and the power of his resurrection. It was about checking off the boxes when it came to our religious duties. They had lost the hunger and thirst for God's word and the desire to share the gospel with those in and out of the church. And to this, Jesus says, wake up. Henry Morris says, the remedy for lethargy and routine religiosity is an awakening to the eminence of Christ's return. And many, many of us may have gotten caught up with this. Well, I'm just waiting for the Lord to return. And when we get closer, <laughs> when we get closer to his return, then I'll wake up. But for now, I got time to buy. Come on. Do you not see what's happening in our world? Jesus could come back at any moment. See, when we come up with that, you, you want to know how you're, if, if, excuse me, you're spiritually lethargic, is you'll have that excuse. I got time. I got time to buy. I got, you know, I got things to do. I got a life to live. Listen, you're not living life until you're actually anticipating the return of Christ. So the call for us this morning as, as believers is, is to get rid of the mindset that you've got time, that I've got time to buy. Jesus said that it would get worse and we'd understand. Listen, it is worse. It is worse today. Today is the day of salvation. And when you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. And Jesus is saying, wake up. Don't wait till the very end. Wake up now. We must pursue the things of the Lord. We must passionately fall in love with the Savior of our souls. We must constantly be looking for the return of Christ. And we must remember that Jesus gave us things to look for. He says, when these things come upon you, your redemption is nigh. It's coming. Be ready. Don't put off uh, what you can put on today, which is an, a spiritual awakening. Listen, if you need a spiritual awakening today, Jesus is giving you the remedy to it, and it's this. It's very simple. You ready? Wake up. Wake up today. You see, Jesus did not create us for religion. So we could have this list of reading our Bible, praying, and going to church. He didn't create us for that. Jesus created us for relationship with God. And so here, what we must do to wake up is to actively pursue the Lord. Get into the Word. Make it a daily habit. Don't just wait for Sunday morning. Don't, don't just wait until we have Tuesday, Tuesday nights with the youth group or, or whatever else we have here. It's blinking. My mind's blinking. Um, 
Get into the word, pray. If you're having a hard time praying, find somebody who will keep you accountable, who, who will come and show up and say, hey, before you go into work, let, let's pray. Or let me call you at this time. Let's pray together. See, many times we find ourselves in a spiritual rut and we do nothing about it. We just stay in the rut. We just hang out there because, well, I, I, I don't know how to get out. You know how to get out. <laughs> Wake up. So how do I get out of the rut that I'm in? The second thing is strengthen that which remains. The question is, though, what was remaining that was about to die within the church? Well, another translation, uh, it reads, strengthen the things that remain. The word things does not refer to people. It, it refers to spiritual realities, what we have in Christ. And just to list off what spiritual realities are, listen to some of these. John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people fit for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellency of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Romans 8.31 What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Romans 8.1 There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Those are spiritual realities. What you have in Christ, what I have in Christ are the promises that are found in his word. Jesus is calling the church. The remainder of those in Sardis who are barely hanging on to remember these promises that are found in Scripture. I know for myself, personally, I've found myself in places where I feel like I'm barely hanging on to the Lord. Uh, you've had that moment, too, where it just feels like you're, you're just hanging on to the, the, the hem of His garment. And it feels like you don't have a very strong grip because something is causing you to to feel disconnected, if you will. Maybe it's due to a relational strain in your family or, or constant financial disagreements with your, your spouse. Something in your life is causing you to feel like, man, I, I'm barely hanging on. Maybe it's physical pain. Maybe it's disobedient kids. Maybe it's marital issues. You just feel like, I don't know how strong I, I've got a grip on Jesus right now. Whatever you may be experiencing, experiencing in life, there's two things that you can do. One, remember who's holding on to you. John 10, 28. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Listen, if you've placed your faith in Christ, you are in the safest place possible, even in the midst of your worst season. Number two is remember the promises of God, the spiritual realities, the, that God loved you enough to sacrifice his son, that you have been saved by his grace through faith, that you are chosen, a royal priesthood, a person for his own possession. Listen, remember who is holding on to you. And remember the promises of God. Uh, the third way to get out of a Spiritual lethargy is to keep it. Keep what? Well, Jesus says what you've heard. 
the word, the word of God. What you have heard, um, what did they hear? They heard the word of God. Keep, remember, in the beginning of Revelation, there's a blessing for those who keep the word of God. Keep actually can translate into obey. If we hear the word only, you've heard this before, and, and do nothing about it, we don't actually apply it to our lives. We're living in disobedience to the Lord. James 1.22, but be doers of the word and not hearers only. The next solution is to repent. I don't know if you've recognized this, but throughout the churches so far, that has been a constant theme throughout the messages to these, these churches. Repent. It's a continual message of repentance, of turning away from sin and turning again to Christ. And in verse 3, Jesus says, If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come against you. Now, most of these believers, on the onset of it all, had tasted the goodness and kindness of the Lord. They were aware of the spiritual realities. They knew that Jesus had saved them by shedding his, his blood, by being buried in a grave, rising again from the, uh, the dead. They had tasted the Lord. They knew his goodness and kindness, but they turned back. They turned back to their lifestyle of sin And there would be great judgment for them. Jesus says, I'm going to come to you like a thief. Now, when you read scripture, anytime Jesus says he's coming like a thief, it more so points to his imminent judgment or his return. Uh, However, in this particular instance, in this context, because context is important, uh, this is not pointing to Jesus' second coming. This is pointing to the fact that Jesus would come and remove their lampstand. He would wipe them out, much like he said to the church in Ephesus. If not, in Revelation 2.5, if you will not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. I, I will take away your influence within the city. I will remove your lampstand. And, and I'll take it even a, a step further. He would find another city to house this church and Jesus was essentially pointing to this church being revived. Revival must take place, and if revival doesn't take place, the church will continue to be complacent. It will continue to be okay with coming into the, the building and just staying here and doing nothing, nothing else. In verse four, Jesus says, Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments. And they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Jesus is saying, there's a few. There's a few left who are being faithful unto me while seeing what is happening in their city. There's a few who are remaining faithful. And he classifies them as people who have not soiled their garments. Uh, A commentator by the name of Homer Haley says, to defile one's garments is to pollute the life that has been cleansed by the blood of Christ. Defilement is failure to keep oneself unspotted from the world. And it grows out of failure to hate even the garment spotted by the flesh. These are people who have stayed away from every appearance of evil. These are people who have remained awake spiritually and who have not drifted off and gone back to their vomit. Proverbs 26, 11, as a dog returns to his vomit, so a fool returns to his folly. The significance of the garments is that these 
typically symbolized character, character throughout the scripture. Uh, Isaiah 64, 6, all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Here's the application. Before Christ, we are living in sin. No matter how many amount of good things you do, you are in sin. If you are not in Christ, you are living in sin. Sin is your master, and you need to be free from it. The only way to be unchained from sin as your master is to come to Christ. There you will find forgiveness of your sins. But when we come to Christ, he takes our sin, he forgives us of it, and exchanges our filthy unrighteousness for his righteousness. And so when you and I stand before the Father, and the Father looks at you, he's not looking at you for your unrighteousness, he's looking at you for what Christ has imparted unto you, which is, your, which is his, excuse me, righteousness. It's what he's done. Because you've placed your faith in Christ, he's no longer looking at you for what you've done, but for the finished work of Christ that has come upon you. Jesus says, they will walk with me in white. For they are worthy. And it wasn't due to a worthiness of their own, but because of them believing in Jesus. Because they have kept in step with staying faithful to him. Verse 5. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. And I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Okay. How many of you have heard of the book of life before? Right? Book of life. Okay. Simply put, it is the register or recording of those who will enjoy eternal life. So I, I hope and pray that all of our names are written in that book of life because we've accepted Christ as our Savior. The only way our name is written in that book of life is because of Jesus. So, but Jesus says here, now track with me for a minute because we're almost done. And I'm so glad I saved the question of, can we lose our salvation till, till the end? Um, <laughs> so does this verse point to the fact that I can lose my salvation? Now, uh, Jesus specifically says here, I will never blot his name out of the book of life. And a lot of people will come to this verse and they will say, well, does that mean I can lose my salvation? Because if Jesus can blot a name out, it must mean that I can lose my salvation. Uh, salvation. Let's understand what it is first. In its simplest form, it is this. You have been saved from sin, forgiven of your sin, past, present, and future, all because of the sacrificial death of Christ on the cross. Amen? It means you've been saved from eternal separation, a.k.a. hell. Uh, it means you've been saved from the wrath of God towards your sin, the judgment of God. The wrath of God was poured out upon Jesus so you wouldn't have to endure it. So I wouldn't have to endure it. But salvation is also God is holy. It is recognizing that he is holy. And nobody can stand forgiven of their sins apart from Christ. Salvation. Okay? It is a free gift, but a costly gift. Because it cost Jesus his life. But we have to understand the context for a minute. Jesus is speaking to those who have not soiled their garment, meaning they have not given in to worldly compromise. They have not given in to spiritual lethargy. They have not given in to falling asleep spiritually. These are people who have remained consistent in their faith. This is the assurance for those who have been saved 
who are saved and who have lived a life that reflects Jesus saved me. Okay? This is for them. So the question is, is there such thing as losing my salvation? Answer, no. I don't believe there is such thing as losing your salvation. If you think you can lose your salvation, I wonder if you really had salvation to begin with. Now, let's take it a step further. True salvation results in regeneration. Meaning, if you're truly saved, you will have a desire to do that which pleases the Lord. If you're truly saved, if you have genuinely given your life over to Christ, listen, Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord and he will grant you the desires of the heart. As you delight yourself in the Lord, your desires will start to reflect his, not your sinful worldly desires. And so those that have been genuinely saved will have a desire to, to walk with the Lord, to please the Lord. You won't want to walk away from him. And so Philippians 1.6, I have two verses. And if you still have more questions after that, I am happy to address any questions. Philippians 1.6, why do I believe that you cannot lose your salvation? Number one, Philippians 1.6, for I am confident of this very thing. What is Paul confident of? That he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. If you are saved, it is because God initiated it. It's not because of you. The Holy Spirit drew you to understanding that you were in great and desperate need of a Savior. But listen, God doesn't just save. He continues to cleanse us from sin. God doesn't just save us. He keeps us. Romans eight thirty three through 39. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Listen, there is no doubting that God chooses to save his people and then keeps secure those he saves. If salvation was dependent upon you and I, then we'd be in trouble. But it's dependent upon Jesus and what he's done for us. We've talked about it before. Jesus doesn't lose his sheep. Jesus doesn't forget about his sheep in John 10, 26 through 30. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Did you catch that? No one. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one will snatch them out of the Father's hand. Listen, if you are a true believer in Christ, 
You have confessed him as Lord and are seeking to live to bring him glory. You are eternally secure because of who is holding on to you. Salvation belongs to the Lord. The only way you and I are saved is because of what Jesus did for us. If salvation could be lost, then that would, be, that would mean it is dependent upon you. But salvation is not dependent upon us. It is dependent upon Jesus and what he did on the cross for us. Verse 6, as we close. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Pretty simple to close his message. He's saying, listen, if you're spiritually asleep, wake up. Keep the word of God. Repent of your sins. Come back to your first love. Essentially is what Jesus would tell all the churches. But this church had the reputation of being alive, but was dead on the inside. So, maybe you haven't received salvation today. Maybe you aren't saved. Maybe you're wondering, where am I going to go after I die? Maybe you thought you were saved and you've been full of hypocrisy. You've been full of religiosity going through the motions. Listen, come back to Jesus. Come back to the Lord. Follow him. Uh, make, make it your aim to please him in everything that you do. Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. And some of us, maybe this morning, we just need to hear that simple truth. Jesus loves you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that salvation is not dependent upon us. Lord, we, we have our part in that we confess you as Lord and Savior, but we can do nothing to earn that salvation. No amount of good works could save us, only the blood of Jesus. And so, Lord, we ask that as we continue to walk with you, for those of us that know you know you intimately and deeply, Lord. I pray that our desire would always be to do that which pleases you. But Lord, when we fall short, because we will, Lord, help us to, to come to you. Lord, I pray that if anybody needs to accept you as their Lord and Savior, that they would do that today. They would repent of their sins, they would receive salvation, and that they would know that their sins can be forgiven because of what you've done. And so, Lord, help us to be awake. Help us to be ready for your return, to always look for the return of Christ. And so, Lord, we ask that you would go before us this day. Give us opportunities to share the gospel with those around us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.